1 Kings chapter 17, and uh, we are embarking on a new series which we began last week in the life of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. It's a character study, and there's a lot to be learned through his life, and he's introduced to us in 1 Kings chapter 17, and last week would have been a general introduction to the theme and to his life in general with some background information. If you missed that, I encourage you to maybe go on the website and listen to it because it really does set the stage for the details that we're going to be walking through together. Um, My desire for today's Bible study is that it would be intensely practical. I, I want today to be something that you can leave here and say, that really... That really applies to me. That's something that I can really work with. Now, when we look at an Old Testament character like Elijah, there are, and we looked at this some last week, there's a lot of very interesting historical references of what was going on in Israel at that time. And there are some amazing doctrinal and prophetic correlations that God is trying to teach us about yet future events with the tribulation and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and in due time we'll get to a lot of those as well but today I'm not going to do that today I want us to be intensely practical today what we're going to see is just how practical an Old Testament story can be if we'll look at it and dissect it um, as it's given to us so the intro to Elijah starts in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, and, and what we're going to see today is a picture from his life. And, and the theme is of the series, and it was the title of last week's message, of standing for God in perilous times. Uh, and in order to be able to do that, you need to learn how to stand. If you're going to actively stand in the midst of trials and difficulties in a society in a time of history that we live in now, that is described as perilous. We saw that in 2 Timothy 3. Then you need, to, you need to learn how to stand. You need to know how to stand on your own two spiritual feet. And so that's kind of what we're going to look at today. And so the title for today is The Development of a Man of God. And, and that's what I want us to understand. This chapter uh, describes the development in Elijah's life that makes him the man that he is so that he can then enter into the amazing trials that begin immediately in chapter number 18 that we'll see if you come back next week. Um, This is the kind of a man that God can use in a time of adversity. And since it says in James chapter 5 that Elijah is a man that, you know, has like passions like like we do, uh, we can take from Elijah's life the fact that it can also be applicable to our life as well. So, Without spending any more time, let's just go to the Lord. Let's ask him to bless this study, and and we'll jump right in. So, Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and and we uh, humble our hearts before your holy word. This book, the Bible, it is your word, and we understand it as such. It's not the words of man. They're the words of God. And uh, this Old Testament story, thousands of years prior, is still the living, active word of God. You have something here today for me. You have something here today for everyone. And my prayer is that each and every one of us sincerely before you can pray these words. Lord Jesus, speak to my heart today. Take your scripture today and show me where I'm at and what you want me to do and what the very next steps are in my life. Lord, we probably all, most all, if not all of us, desire to be able for it to be said of us that he was a man of God, she was a woman of God. And in this story of Elijah, his development to that status can really chart our course as well. So please work in a way that only you can, and we'll give you all the honor and glory and thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, our first point, it starts in verse number one, and we're going to read it, but your point, and you have a blank in your notes, is the first thing we're going to look at are some private disciplines. The word is disciplines that goes in your blank. Please follow along. I'm going to read the first seven verses of 1 Kings chapter 17. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. 
And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according to the word of, of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening. And he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And so we're going to look at some disciplines. And we're going to start with this first section, these first seven verses. And, and these are the disciplines. These are the things that a man or a woman of God develops in his or her personal walk relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. These are private things. These are personal things. This, this is your, you are developing your relationship with the Lord. And so these are the things that you need to see begin to develop in your life if you are going to be the type of a man or a woman that will take a stand in perilous times. Not unlike athletes who have to master the fundamentals of their sport and they practice them over and over and over again until they become second nature. They are the ones who become the professionals. They are the ones who become very good at the sport or activity that they're a part of because they have mastered the fundamentals. Here we are talking about the fundamental disciplines that make a man or a woman to be a man or a woman of God. And the first thing is very obvious, and it is prayer. Now, in this passage, you don't actually see prayer. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look in James chapter 5. So with one hand, keep 1 Kings 17. And with the other hand, you can turn and get ready in James chapter 5. But I want you to notice before we go to James 5, in, in chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said unto Ahab, the king of Israel, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. So Elijah just jumps right into the story from the very first verse that he's introduced and he begins to declare to Ahab, it's not going to rain. Oh, and there's not even going to be dew on the grass in the morning. There's not going to be moisture at all until I say so. Now, that's a, that's a pretty bold statement. I mean, who, who of us would do such a thing in front of anybody at any time? and makes such a bold statement like he did. I want to remind you, if you were here last week, that Elijah's very name is a breakdown of two words. Eli, which really is is short for Elohim. It's one of the names of God. It literally means my God. And then Jah, the J-A-H, is really the short version of like Yah, Yahweh, or Jehovah. My God, Jehovah. And we saw how Elijah literally finds By the virtue of his very name, he finds his personal identity in God alone. As we should, Christian, find our identity in Jesus Christ alone. And so Elijah stands and he says, there's not going to be rain or dew on the earth until I say so, according to my word. Wow. I mean, that's, that's something. But as he is so absorbed into the very life of God, maybe it's going to start to make some sense. Where did all that boldness actually come from? Well, it came from a life that Elijah had in prayer, and that's what we see in James chapter 5, because if we compare Scripture with Scripture, and we want to put the story of his life together, you have to know that before Elijah stood and declared to Ahab, first he went to the Lord. First He spent time with God in prayer. And that's what we see in James chapter 5 and verse number 17. Elias, which is the New Testament way of referring to Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. And so here we see that the first thing Elijah does when he recognizes the situation that's around him, and we'll look into that in just a second, is that he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Now I told you today's message is going to be specifically focused on the practical application of the development of a man of God, and and that's what we're going to do. But just as a sidebar, for some of you Bible students who are interested... 
Let me just remind you, and we will see this again, the doctrinal application of this story, if you want to get into it, we're talking about what the Bible refers to as the former and the latter reigns. There is something referred to prophetically that deals with the tribulation time, that there will be rain and then there will be a drought for three and a half years. That's referred to as the great tribulation. And then there will be the latter rain at the end of the three and a half year drought. And this rain will be such a rainstorm that will actually usher in the literal, physical, bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ in his second coming. And so the doctrinal prophetic application of what we're dealing with here is Elijah representing that forerunner that must come. We saw this last week. Before the Lord comes to the earth is also going to have this time that's marked with these two great rainstorms, one before, nothing in between, and one at the end. It's the former and the latter rain, and the references abound. In fact, the little epistle to James, if you're a Bible student, you will notice at the very beginning, it is written not to just Christians, whoever. It is written to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered abroad, and the doctrinal application of the epistle of James is to the scattered tribes throughout the land during the time of tribulation. And so you have all of those pieces come together. That's just something that some of you may want to pursue. That's really not our focus today. We just want to talk about he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it didn't rain. I mean, his prayer had power. He prayed in such a way that he actually got results. So what we want to look at is how did he pull that off? How can I pray in such a way that I actually see the answer to my prayer? How can I pray in such a way that I can expect God to do and to work according to my word, according to the things that I'm praying? Well, let's look at our notes. The elements of prayers that get answered are defined for us in that short passage in James chapter 5. It says in verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Availeth much means it gets a lot of work done. It gets things done. It's a prayer that works. It's a prayer that is answered. And so let's break it down into its component parts. The first thing is it's effectual. And there's a couple of ways that we're going to define this. The first way is an effectual prayer is a biblical prayer. And that's your blank, biblical. An effectual prayer is a biblical prayer. Now, we know that because if you go back and you study in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, we have Moses declaring to the children of Israel just prior to crossing the Jordan River and entering into the promised land, Moses is reminding the children of Israel of all the statutes and the law of God. And he's telling them all the things that they need to remember when they enter the promised land so that they do things the right way, so they're obedient to the Lord. And it says, in Deuter among all these warnings and admonitions, it says in Deuteronomy eleven sixteen, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit, lest you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. And so there's an admonition, there's a warning that if you are so disobedient, Israel, that you will turn away from me and you will serve other gods, and if you will worship them. Now, last week we talked all about the perilous times of Elijah, and we talked about the times of Ahab and Jezebel, his wife, the queen. And we saw that that time was a time where they set up altars to the false god Baal. And they had houses of worship for Baal at a level that had never been seen before in the land of Israel. And, and the evil that was present in the reign of Ahab far exceeded everybody that was ever before him. And Elijah is just observant. He noticed what was going on around him, and he's a student of the Scripture. And he saw in the Scripture that God said, if you do these things, I will withhold the rain. And Elijah said, well, if ever that Scripture was going to be applied, it is going to be applied here and now, today, in the situation that I live in. And so an effectual prayer is a prayer that agrees with God's Word. 
You can be all passionate about praying about things you want, but they are not biblical things. You have no guarantee of getting those things. I mean, pray all you want, but you have no guarantee that God agrees with you. But if you pray basically the scripture back to God, well, you know that you are of one mind with the Lord in these things. If you took the time to look, and we don't need to read them together, the previous verses in Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 15, what you see there is that the flip side or the blessing that will come, God says, look, if you obey me, I'm going to send the rain and you're going to have crops and everybody's going to be healthy and all these good things are going to happen if you obey me. But if you don't, I'm going to withhold the rain. And so no rain is a sign of judgment. It's a result of the sin and the disobedience of Israel serving other gods and worshiping them. So what does Elijah do? Elijah develops this discipline in his life that he's studying God's word, understanding it in context, applies it properly to his day, and prays it back to God. That is an effectual prayer. Now, there is another definition and a way to apply the idea of an effectual prayer. Number two, that is by faith. A prayer that is effectual is biblical, and a prayer that is effectual is prayed in faith. Elijah truly believed that it would happen. He believed that God said what he meant and meant what he said and would do exactly what he said. And so he stood up as the representative of God and declared to the king, when it had not yet occurred, this is what will happen. There will be no rain and there will be no dew according to my word. He's representing God. He's an ambassador for, God, for Jehovah God. And he is standing and saying, it has yet to happen. This is a step of faith. Faith is the absence of sight. He is standing up, believing God at his word, and saying, this will happen. Well, he certainly believed what he said. We see the same thing. The Lord Jesus, um, in Matthew chapter 21, and verse number 21 says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if, it's conditional, if ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which was done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. Verse 22, And all things... Whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. Ye shall receive. So we're building our list of conditions. We're comparing the scriptures and we're seeing how is it that we can have prayer like Elijah, that we can have prayer that actually works. Well, it needs to be effectual, which means it needs to be biblical, and it means that we need to actually believe it. We need to believe what we are praying and asking for will actually occur. Why? Because the scripture says it. We've understood it in context. We absolutely believe it, and we expect God to act. When you do that, you will find an amazing increase in the answers to your prayers. Well, continuing on, number three, fervent. Your prayer not only needs to be effectual, but the effectual fervent prayer. It says, what is fervent? Well, fervent is earnest earnest. It says in James 5, 17, he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Uh, we might use the word emotional. We might say that he was desperate. He prayed earnestly. He was fervent in prayer. There was a, a passion and an emotional connection to this request. He's begging God. When we get to a little further down in this chapter in 1 Kings 17, it says in verse 20, it says that he cried unto the Lord. So he's got this emotional connection. He's earnestly begging God for him to do something. And oftentimes, we pray for one another. We pray for things that are going on in our lives and lives of others around us. And we do it out of duty. We do it because somebody asked us and, well, we want to pray. And so we might have a list and we might say, uh, Lord, we pray for this guy, and then we pray for that guy, and, and you know, she said this, so do that. And, and we kind of work our way down the list. And I'm not trying to knock the fact that we do that, because I, I get it. It's, it's, it's hard sometimes to be just 
you know, sweat and blood, you know, passionate on the floor, you know, crying out to God for every single request. When people may bring you scores, hundreds of requests, I mean, you know, we'd just be a, just a pile of dish rags on the ground. I mean, it would be hard to really, tr- I get it's hard to pull it off, but just think about it for a second. Sometimes we just kind of, you know, have one eye shut and one eye open and do this and bless them and do this and bless them. Amen. And we walk away and we think, is anything happening really? Well, maybe it's because, well, you know, it wasn't that fervent. I mean, maybe. Uh, Let me have you consider this. Uh, In those times, and hopefully they're not too frequent, nobody wants them to be frequent, but in those times in your life where there's real tragedy, uh, a loved one is sick and their life is hanging by a thread. And maybe for the first time in quite some time, you find yourself on your face crying out to the Lord, begging him for answers. Please heal my husband, wife, friend, sister, brother. Please help the Some tragedy, some danger comes into your life. Whatever the situation, it is a real serious deal in your life, unlike anything you've experienced in a long time. And you are on your face weeping to the Lord. Well, not always, I understand. But frequently, when those situations arise and when you find yourself in that kind of an urgent, passionate, emotional time of prayer, believing that God will do something, well, lo and behold, he does. I mean, lo and behold, he answers and great things happen and I know, I know, people still get sick and die and, and, and bad things still happen to good people. I, I do understand. But I know in my life frequently, when it got that bad and when I got that serious, things started happening. Things started changing. And it's kind of a rebuke to me. I, I think, my man, why, why can't I be that passionate all the time? Well, to have fervent, effectual, but fervent prayer, well, that's... That's the prayer that avails much. Uh, Number four, lastly in this list, is of a righteous man. Well, a righteous man is simply a man who makes right choices, right? I mean, the Bible does say that Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. That means that Elijah was no different than we are. He has the same human sin nature that we have. He just made good choices in the midst of that. Right? I mean, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. So the temptations that come into your life are the same temptations that come into my life. They're the same temptations that were in everybody's life, including Elijah. Uh, We even read about the Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 4, where it talks about that he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. So even Jesus Christ as a man on this earth was tempted just the same way we're tempted. But Jesus never sinned. Well, Elijah was, he's a righteous man. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he was sinless. It just means that he had the same passions that we had. He just made good choices. His choices qualify him as righteous. They were the right choices. Okay, parents, think about it this way. Uh, Those of you that have several children... Um, consider this situation. I, I know, I know none of you would ever say that you have a favorite. Kids, we don't have favorites. We love you all exactly the same. That's the story we got to tell, okay? <laughs> but while we're loving you all the same, let's just say for the, the case of this, you know, study, that Somebody has two kids, and one child is very obedient, very submissive, does the things their parents ask, is helpful around the house. When they ask for things, they respond. They're kind. They're, you know, it's, they're, they're, they're the model child. And then there's another child who, you know, isn't. And, you know, they got their own thing going on, and, you know, whatever. And, you know, when they do things, they do them half-hearted, and they're kind of lying, and 
Okay, so your parents aren't stupid, right? They, they got that figured out, and they know that half the time or more than half the time, you know, they're asking you to do stuff, and you're like, whatever, and you're not doing it. And Okay, so then both of these children come to the same parents, right? They're, they're brother and sister or whatever. They come to the parents, and they say, you know, on independent times, they're like, hey, mom, dad, you know, I, do you think that you could help me with this situation I got going on here? And the other one asks the same thing. Now, let me just ask you, do you... Do you think that maybe there's a chance that the parents are more inclined to give to the child who asks if that child had if that child had done all the things the parent asked of them do you think the parents willing to do what the child asks of them probably now if the child always says no I ain't doing what you say no I ain't doing what you say no I ain't doing what you say I know you're not supposed to say ain't but sorry okay I didn't go to English okay so and then they say, yeah, but dad, do this for me. Do you think the dad just might want to say, well, I ain't doing it for you either? I mean, it's just something to think about, right? I mean, it's just something to think about. The effectual, fervent prayer of an obedient child, of a righteous man, avails much. And that's kind of what we're dealing with. That's the way it works with God. And so all of you young people, right, if you're still young enough that you live in your parents' home, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm your friend, man. I'm here to help you. Uh, if your life is characterized by disobedience, you know, don't be all freaked out when your parents are like, yeah, I'm not all that motivated. Sorry. Um, I know not every parent acts that way. You know, my kids figured that out. But if, on the other hand, you're a good kid and you do the things that they ask of you and you're reasonable and all that sort of thing, and then I promise you, you ask your parents stuff, they're going to be reasonable with you too, right? Amen, parents? How'd I do? Did I do okay? That's true. That's real life. So now let's bring it all back home. Christians, right? When you read God's word, when you believe it as it is written, you understand it in context, you choose willingly to align your life with the truth of God's word. And you do that regularly as a habit. And then you go to the Lord with a request. Don't you think that he's inclined to want to help you? Don't you think that he's more inclined to say, well, the request is in accordance with my word. It's biblical. Uh, He actually believes it, which is kind of a rare treat. (laughs) He really, I mean, fervently is asking. And he's a good kid. I think I'm going to help him out. I think I'm going to do it. And, and that's what we can expect. That is a discipline, a private discipline of a life that will be developed into a man or woman of God. That's a discipline. The other one is Bible study. And, and we've kind of been talking about that because they're obviously intermingled together. So we know that Elijah was reading and studying and understanding Deuteronomy 11 and believing it. But I also want to point out that the rest of this story from verse 2 to verse 7, what it does is it paints for us a beautiful picture of Elijah's life as he is sent to this place, the brook Cherith. The brook Cherith, okay? And so he says, hey, go to the brook Cherith, drink from the river, the ravens are going to bring you food. Kind of a cool story. It's going to picture something for us. Before we get into that, I have a question for you. Why did God send Elijah to Cherith? If you read a lot of Bible commentaries, they will say something like, typically, well, God sent Elijah to Cherith so that, you know, so that Ahab wouldn't kill him. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't say that. And up until this point, later on in the story, we're going to see Jezebel threatening to kill Elijah, but up until this point, there's no evidence whatsoever that Ahab is threatening any personal ill on Elijah. God just said, go to this place, go to the brook Cherith. Why do you suppose that he did that? Well, I think it is, the answer that's in your notes that I put for you is to learn something. He sent him there so that Elijah could learn some important lessons of life so that Elijah could develop the discipline that he will need for the rest of his life and his ministry. 
So he starts out great. He's got this faith of a child. He reads the scripture. He believes it. He prays it will happen. And then he declares it will happen before it actually happened. So he's demonstrating faith. There's no question about it, right? Hebrews 11, faith, right, is the substance things hope for. The evidence of things not seen. And so he's living this life. And so now we're getting past the prayer part. And if you're going to really learn something, God wants to teach him a lesson. Well, if you're going to learn something, you need to study. So we're going to look at a couple references where the Bible uses the word study. The first principle or of private discipline that you're going to need to develop is a quiet time. A quiet time. Now, the word cherith, the name cherith, if you were to translate it from the Hebrew language, literally what it means is different variations of to cut down. To, to cut down or to cut out, uh, to gouge, okay, or to cut away, that sort of a thing. And, and the idea is that this place, this brook, and you can, you know, look on maps and you can find out. Okay, so it is a, it's a gorge. It's a valley, and it's, it's a rough, remote place. It's deserted. And so God sends Elijah to a place far away from all civilization. He sends him to a place where he will be all alone. And there's nobody there to interact with but God alone. And that is the whole point. God wants to teach him something. God wants to teach Elijah to have quiet time with God. This is critically important in our lives. In fact, this is the place, this quiet place. And hopefully you all have a quiet time and a quiet place for this time that you can spend alone only with God. This is the place where God then can have his voice be heard, right? In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 11, it says this, and that ye study to be quiet. That's an interesting application of the word study, isn't it? But we're to study some things, right? And we'll see the other more obvious one in just a moment. But here the Bible says study to be quiet and do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. And so this last June, uh, our youth went to camp and the theme for camp was noise. That was the name. And there's t-shirts printed. Somebody might be wearing one. I don't know. And so the idea was to remind the kids that we live in a very noisy world and that if we're going to hear the voice of the Lord, we need to put out the noise for a while and get alone with God in a quiet place and allow him to speak. Why do we spend so much effort and money so that our kids can go away to camp for four days? Because the dirty little secret is the parents just want them out of the house? No, of course not. It is so that the kids in an otherwise very noisy world of having their nose buried in a five-inch screen or whatever it is, can get away for just a minute, just a week, and give God the chance to speak to them. God is trying to speak to you, but sometimes we can't hear it because it's just too noisy. And so what Elijah needed to learn was to just be quiet. Let me ask you something, parents. Do you, we all have time where we have to drive to work or we're in our car and we're alone. We don't have others with us or whatever, and maybe it's your habit to turn on the radio or or maybe you've got, you know, CDs or whatever you like to listen to or something. Maybe you use that time in the car to listen to uh, audible books or podcasts. or I mean, very profitable things you can do when you're in the car. But let me, let me ask you, do you ever just turn it all off? And just alone in the car, just pray. And maybe just pray very little and just, I mean, pray with your eyes open, by the way, if you're driving. Just listen, listen and see if the Lord just might speak to your heart while you're doing, I mean, there are ways you can do this without having to go away to the remote gorge of the brook Cherith, right? But quiet time with God alone is critically important, which obviously then leads to our second point, which I'm going to call dinner time. Dinner time, right? So, 
spending time right alone with God. And so what's going to happen is he's going to get his strength. He's going to get his food directly from God. He doesn't have to go hunt. He doesn't have to go trap. He doesn't have to go fish. He's going to bring the food directly to Elijah. Not unlike Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness when the manna came down from heaven. God himself is going to provide the food for Elijah. And Elijah is going to learn, here's the key, here's the picture, to be fed directly from God. Are you seeing it? And the only way he's going to learn to be fed directly from God is if he understands he has to have a quiet time and a quiet place with the Lord. I don't think I need to keep emphasizing this. So God sends Elijah to this nice little outdoor restaurant with a view and a patio. And the waiters are ravens. <laughs> and they're bringing him food. And he can drink from the river. And the ravens will bring him bread. And they're going to bring him flesh. What's on the menu? Well, what's on the menu is water. Ephesians 5.26 compares water to the word of God. What's on the menu? It's bread. Well, Luke 4.4 compares bread to the word of God. What's on the menu? Flesh or meat. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, compare meat to the word of God. Are you getting the picture? You get the quiet place in your life where God himself can feed you from his word. Thank God for opportunities we have to sit and listen to other people who can preach or teach the word of God, and we can buy a book, and the book can help illustrate things and teach us things. Thank God for those things. But man, have you developed the discipline in your life to have this kind of a prayer life that Elijah had and to, and to allow God to just speak to you directly through his word, just you and he alone, and let him feed you. You see, these are the disciplines of a life that will be developed into a man or a woman of God. These are the things that we need to see. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Of course, the word study is used in the Bible in a directive way only twice. Study to be quiet and study the word of God. That's the only time it's ever used in your King James Bible. And it says, study to show thyself approved. I mean, it's great that somebody else studies and helps you, but study to show thyself, singular, you as an individual. You do it. And we do it when we get alone with God. So develop the personal discipline of letting God feed you daily. So I want you to notice God's first miracle in this time and age is to Elijah. God does the miracle for him, for his benefit. It's miraculous feeding. God provides the food miraculously. That's the first miracle that we see in the life and time of Elijah. And so this is a time in a believer's life that's a test. It's lonely, although it can be beautiful. It's a time where you learn to develop your personal relationship with God alone. This would be where Elijah is established in the word of God and prayer. That's what we see until the circumstances changed. He prayed for no rain. There was no rain. The brook dried up. So it's time to move on. And you know what happens in life, don't you? Circumstances come into your life, and those circumstances require that you move on to something else. And that's point number two, public declaration. Declaration is your blank. Public declaration. We're going to start in verse number eight now. And we're going to go down through verse number 16. So the brook dries up in verse 7. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Before he commanded the ravens, now he's commanding a widow woman. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. 
And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said unto her, Man, I feel bad. Go ahead and eat it. Forget about me. I'm okay. No, he did not say that. Fear not. Go and do as thou hast said, but make me a little, make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. She just said, I don't have enough for you. He said, Yeah, yeah, I know. Hey, give it to me first anyway. Well, we're going to talk about that. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. What in the world is going on in this story? Well, let's start with the same question we asked the first time. Why did God send Elijah to Zarephath? We figured out why he sent him to Cherith. Why did God, God is developing Elijah here, guys. Why did he send him to Zarephath? Well, the easy answer would be, well, to keep providing for him. I mean, there's no more water. Guy's got to have something to drink. So, okay, all right. In the simplest of understanding, yes, he was going to provide for Elijah. But I think there's a lot more to this, okay? Why did God send Elijah to Zarephath? Well, I think the answer is to share his faith. And that's your blank, to share his faith. He is to exhort others to believe in God, namely this widow woman and her son. So before we get into it, why did he send him so far away? So where he was in Samaria with Ahab, he would have gone eastward till just before he got to the Jordan River to the brook Cherith. Zarephath is in Zidon, and last week we saw that Zidon is on the northwest coast of Israel, so far from Cherith. Why did he send him so far away to be taken care of? Well, I want you to remember something. Luke chapter 4, comparing Scripture with Scripture, verses 24 to 26. And he said, Verily I say unto you, Jesus, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias. There you have context. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land... But unto none of them, none of the other widows, was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sion, unto a woman that was a widow. And so in the context of illustrating the point that Jesus is trying to make, that no prophet has honor in his hometown. But rather than going to the widows of where he was from, God sent him far away to Zidon, a foreign population, Yes, to take care of Elijah, but to share his faith and to declare publicly the truth of Jehovah God and his miracle-working capability. You might have in your notes Mark chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, which basically is the same story in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we learn from that is this, is that a predisposed people, people who are predisposed to unbelief, they're going to find a reason to discount your ministry, regardless of what you do, regardless of who you are. And where you frequently find that is where you're from, people who have known you all your life, and they know, oh, I remember that guy. Right, that was the story with Jesus. Isn't he the carpenter's son? He thinks he, who's he think he is? I remember him when he couldn't carry a hammer or whatever. So, young prophets, can I tell you? If you're never going to have honor at home, leave. I mean, let's go spread the word around the world, right? I mean, isn't that the idea that we should go and scatter among the nations and make disciples of all peoples? I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it, actually, when it all comes to play. Okay, so here's the story. He says a widow woman is going to take care of you. Okay, so by now, after the whole experience at Cherith, come on, Elijah knows that God's going to feed him, right? He's got this covered. Man, the ravens fed me. I'm not worried about this thing about me. I'm not stealing the last cake from the old lady and her son. I'm not doing it. It's not that he's worried about him. He knows God's going to take care of him. It's time to share that knowledge with her. 
so that she can understand that, right? So he, he obeys and he goes and he finds her and he asks for the food and all that. And she's like, what? I got nothing. This is the last, this is going to be our last meal. We are going to die of starvation. Which, I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever lived yourself or near others or have been in close personal contact with people who truly are starving to death. Most of us would say never. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible, terrible thing to run out of food. So she's like, man, I'd like to help you. I got nothing. And Elijah's like, what are you freaking out about? Just do what I said. Isn't that what he said? Kind of. He said, fear not. That's what he said. Fear not. Just do what I said. Remember, he kind of identifies with the Lord, right? If you do what I say, it will all work out. Elijah, my God, Jehovah. Now, can I, can I take just a second and point out to you that this passage of Scripture is the favorite passage of Scripture to twist and abuse by TV evangelists? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever been so bored that you found yourself flipping through those weird Christian channels and the guys get on there who are just trying to squeeze you out of your last dollar and they're trying to get you and they'll go to this story of Elijah and they'll say, man, you know, even, you know, and they'll look, I mean, they're looking for like people on retirement fixed incomes and they're like, send your money first to the prophet. Send in your seed money now and God will multiply yours. Well, that is a gross misuse of the understanding of 1 Kings 17. And those guys are charlatans and they're liars and don't send your money to them. Send it to me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't want it. No, I'm kidding. Let me tell you what that, that abuse by those people, you know what that is? Let me read for you what that is. God, God tells us about them. 2 Timothy 3, 6 and 7. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I only say that as a sidebar because maybe you've heard this story before. Maybe you've seen those guys on TV before. Maybe you've been in a place where people do that sort of thing. Don't fall for that junk. Don't let them talk you into something, man. Study to show yourself approved and understand what God's really talking about. That's not what he's talking about. Elijah's not saying pay the prophet first. That's not what he's saying. Elijah wants her to see and to put it on the line to prove God. That's what he's saying. He's not doing this because he's selfish or because there's some religious hierarchy or some ridiculous thing like that. He wants her to trust God. It says in verse 14, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. So, we learn a great lesson through all of this. And the great lesson, I have this statement in your notes. You'll never see miraculous supply until the natural supply runs out. And the miraculous supply will never run out until the natural supply returns, until it starts raining. So that's exactly what we're dealing with here. Okay, so until the natural runs out, there's really no need for God to come through in a miraculous way, is there? So in those instances where our health is failing and there's some disease and for whatever reason, modern medical science can't figure it out and there seems to be no hope and nobody knows what to do, all of our natural resources, all of the things of education and resource and funding and all the things we have available to us, we have exhausted them all and none of them work. So we cry out to God. And God works, and it's a miracle, and he gets the credit. And when God provides miraculously, not until the natural's gone. You know, we, we, can, we can pray that God provide our food, but the truth is your refrigerators are full. You don't really need to have faith for that. And if your refrigerator's not full, well, your bank account is, and all you got to do is drive a couple miles to the grocery store. I mean, really, <laughs> you got it made. We got it made here. We're blessed, aren't we? But... The miraculous will 
not fail. Oh, until, until the natural shows up again. And once the natural shows up again, well, there's no more need for a miraculous. I mean, I've given you plenty of resources. Just, just go eat it. <laughs> just go eat it. So she obeys. Thank the Lord, she obeys. And she learns this principle that when God is all you have, you find he's all you need. When God is all you have, you find that's all you need. That's all you ever needed. And sometimes, friends, God will love you enough to let you run your natural resources dry so that you will learn this lesson and you will develop as a man or a woman of God by being able to have these private disciplines in your life and then to step out and share them with others. So God fulfills his word. He always does. Isaiah 55, 11 says that. The word that goes forth, man, it doesn't return void. So we see God's second miracle here. And in this case, God's second miracle is now through Elijah. It's not to him. It's through him. And that's multiplied food for everybody, right? So God feeds many people. It's like Jesus feeding the 5,000, but Jesus didn't directly feed them. Jesus gave to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the 5,000. So everybody had abundant food. God gave it through the life of the disciples, right? It's time to pass it on to others. And so that's what we see. The third thing is personal discipleship. And this is the last section of verses, and we're done. Personal discipleship. So in the development of a man of God, you're first established in the word of God in prayer. The second point that we saw is that you're established in the ministry of God's word to others. So now it's time to pass it on to other individuals. Now let's, let's, let's read starting in verse 17. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his son and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And so what we're looking at here is in this story, things start going wrong, bad wrong. They, they were eating, and after some time, how much time? We don't really know, but for a while, they've been eating just fine. And out of the blue, a terrible thing happens. The boy dies. And he's not dying from hunger. He just dies. But God returns the life to the child through Elijah. He revives. And that's a picture of personal discipleship. Because real personal discipleship, by the way, it includes evangelism, right? I mean, you guys know the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach or make disciples of all nations. God certainly is not intending to say, go ye therefore into all nations Find existing churches where somebody can take a Christian who doesn't know much and assign him to you to teach him some lessons. That's not what he's saying. Go into all the nations of the world and make disciples from scratch. Lead them to the Lord and then teach them to grow up and walk with the Lord. That's really what he's intending, right? So, Elijah goes to a pagan area. Zidon is a pagan people. We saw that last week. Jezebel is of the Zidonians. And he shares his faith. And in this part of the story, he imparts new life. Can you see that? 
So let's draw some parallels and some examples before we're done. In your notes, the elements of a real discipleship ministry are present in this story. Number one, the entrance of God's word brings tension. It brings a division in the family. To those that are receiving the word for the first time, this widow and her son, over time, there's, there's an immediate sense of joy and relief because God did something, but then there begins this tension, and in this case, it's illustrated because the boy's life is taken. But what happens is, is that when you begin to invest the word of God into people, what you're going to find very, very frequently, almost without, without exception, is there's going to be tension in that family. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be division. There's going to be hardship, and God's going to let it happen because he wants them to turn to him for the solution. And what we see in the story is the people who are suffering, they blame God. Oh, and they blame you. They blame God's man. So we have in verse 18 the first mention of the, of the term, thou man of God. And she uses it in a sarcastic manner. Oh, you man of God, you came here to slay my son? Is that why you came here, Christian? And that's how it's used. The entrance of God's word brings tension. Number two, godly men offer help. They see the problem. They don't take the threats personally, and they offer help. Verse 19, he says, give me thy son. Give him to me. We'll work on this problem. So godly men offer help. That's what a discipleship ministry is about. You understand that you're bringing tension into a situation, but at the same time, you're offering the solution. But he knows he can't do it himself. So number three, a true disciple maker gets emotionally involved. He cries unto the Lord. We talked about that. He truly cares. He prays fervently. He begs God for his help. Because Elijah can't do it himself. He needs God to work in the life of this young man. And number four, a true disciple maker gives all that he has. It says in verse 21 that he stretched himself upon the child and so his hands were on his hands and his torso was on his torso and his face his mouth was on his mouth and he stretched himself upon the child and I know that's a weird visual but think about the picture God's trying to paint because your hands on his hands giving instruction on how to do the work of the Lord your, your mouth on his mouth as God, back in the days of Adam, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and your body on his body and the child begins to realize that he's part of a greater body, the body of Christ. It's a beautiful picture. So God's third miracle in this story, again, is through Elijah where life is imparted to others. The child is revived. Revival. Revival. Life comes for the second time. The Bible calls that being born again. Life is transferred through one person into another person. That's disciple making. Yes, I understand the direct historical application is not disciple-making. God is painting a picture for our practical application in our lives today, and he for sure is working in the development of this man of God. That's what discipleship is. It's the transference of life. It's the transference of maturity. It's not just the transference of knowledge. If all you do in your discipleship relationships is sit down and read a book and fill in a couple of blanks and memorize a verse and check off a couple of things on a list, you're not really discipling anybody. You're just reading some stuff together. You might as well just give them the book and let them read it. True discipleship is you living your life with them together and helping them understand how to live their life that way. And so the last verse is the conclusion, verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God. And the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. By this... 
as a result of these things that you have done and I have seen with mine own eyes, as a result of these things that now I have witnessed, now I know you, Elijah, indeed are a man of God. You are a man of God. And so in your notes, I put it this way. Visible fruit confirms the messenger. Visible fruit confirms the messenger. He's recognized as a man of God because of his fruitful ministry, because of the progression and the development of these things that we have seen. And if you, sir, if you, ma'am, want to be a man or a woman of God, you also will follow this progression in your life. Here's my question for you. Are you established in prayer and in personal Bible study? Do you have a quiet time and a quiet place where God feeds you and you take that word and you apply it and you believe it and you cry out to God and your righteous, obedient life moves the God of heaven on your behalf to act? Do you take the faith that you've learned and do you share it with others? Or are you hiding your treasure under a rock somewhere? He wants you to share it with others. And have you made disciples? that now demonstrate the life of Christ in them, that are living it out and serving God faithfully themselves. Because if you don't have those things yet in your life, then those are the steps that you would take to develop into a man or a woman of God. Let's pray together.